0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But we can just go ahead and get started and again we're glad to see everybody tonight and we're going to take a look again this evening into our study on uh, church history and we're dealing with the doctrine of perpetuity which simply means that there has been a continuous existence of the church in all ages and all periods of history since uh, the beginning when Christ gave it to us that the church has never died out and so there are no periods uh, when the church had to be jump-started or resurrected or restored or reformed but the true church has always maintain the doctrines of christ and really that's not a wild statement that can't be verified because if we go right to the scriptures and we see in this text first that we've been considering for many many weeks in matthew 16 18 that there jesus promised perpetuity to the church and that is a divine promise that's just as sure as the promises to every individual every saved individual of their final salvation Uh, The promises of God can never fail, and that's because we always have the sustaining grace of God. And so as God sustains us in our salvation, so he also sustains the church, and he promised it would be here, and so it will. But God didn't leave that up to uh, just our faith alone. If faith is all that we had to say that it's true, then we would certainly believe it. But God didn't leave it to faith alone. In fact, we can actually look at history, and we can trace the church back through history. And there we find that there are churches that did stay faithful to the doctrines of Christ, although there are many pretenders to it. There is still that pure stream of the doctrines of Christ that have continued all the way since the first century. And, of course, we here in the Berean Baptist Church, we maintain that we are in that pure stream. Some years ago, there was a, a couple of members of our church that accused me of believing in apostolic succession. And I don't know if they had really understood what that term meant. I think obviously, obviously they didn't. But they accused me of believing in apostolic succession when I found out that they had not been properly baptized. Now, last week we dealt with, quite a bit with baptism, but these folks uh, weren't properly baptized, and so when we got into these discussions trying to head me off and where I was going, they said, well, you believe in apostolic succession. And uh, that's that's the what we're accused of sometimes when we talk about church perpetuity, but we don't actually believe in apostolic succession, but we do believe in a continuous existence of the church and the authority of the church since Jesus and the apostles. Now, as I study for uh, these sermons, I keep reading different things, and I've come across several detractors that do have different concepts of the church and uh, what they believe about church history and curiously i did find one baptist writer who who said that those of us who believe in succession are more like roman catholics than we really want to admit now i would say that if rome has anything right at all that they are right on this that there must be a true church that has always maintained the teachings of christ and of course they're mixed up on what those doctrines are. They claim to be a true church when they aren't. But they do have this general principle right. Uh, they are right about this. There must always be a true church, because that in fact is what Christ promised. But there is a lot of contention over this doctrine of perpetuity, and it comes from the interpretation of our text verse here in Matthew sixteen, eighteen, which we believe is a promise to the church. And the church is those that have covenanted together to, to do the work of Christ in the world. Uh, we believe in a succession of local churches. But there are others who look at Matthew sixteen eighteen and say that that really doesn't apply to the church as we believe it, but it refers to the individual believer. That the individual is promised that once he's saved, that he'll always have his salvation. And so they don't interpret church doctrine in the same way that we do. Now, uh, it's interesting that these same people who claim that's what Matthew 16:18 teach, that many of them also believe that a person could, in fact, lose their salvation. Now that shows me that some people are very, very mixed up on what the true meaning of Matthew 16:18 is. And so of course, these are people that don't understand what the church is. The church is not the individual. Now, that's a popular doctrine that you hear everywhere, that, uh, that the individual, we are individuals, we are the church. But what the, the individuals are not the church. The church is a collection of believers. And when the believers come together into one body, that's when they are the church. Now, the people who believe the other way, their view falls squarely into the corner of those who advocate a universal church which was never identifiable as the true church. And so they make Roman Catholicism the church, even though it's never had the true gospel. And then to compound the problem, they say that groups that would not take the yoke of Constantinianism, and uh, if you remember what that is, that is the belief in church-state government and actually accepting Roman Catholicism as the true church, that they say that those groups that we identify with as being true churches that came back to the time of Christ, they say those groups are heretical. Now, if that's true, then where do we find the true church? Where is the church? If the Roman Catholic Church is apostate, as they say, and then all the groups that oppose the Roman Catholic Church are apostate, then where is the church? Well, that shows you that it's untenable to think that Matthew 16:18 is a reference to individual believers. Now, it certainly is true, and we do believe, that no Christian can ever lose his salvation. But we also think that you have to be saved first before you could ever have the possibility, if there was one of losing it, you would have to be saved. And how is it that people can be saved when there is no true church teaching a true gospel? Now, this is what Paul said in Romans 10:14 and 15. He said, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And how, and uh, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, Paul asked there, How can people preach unless they be sent? And who is it that sends the preacher? Well, there's no doubt that Paul had the New Testament church in mind as he expands on this quote that he takes out of the book of Isaiah. And then Paul also said in 1 Timothy 3.15, and this was after he had a discussion on pastors and deacons in the church he said this but if i tarry long that thou mightest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of god which is the church of the living god the pillar and the ground of the truth now that's a very simple statement it says no church no truth now the church upholds the truth and if the church fails then the truth will also fail because god's truth is that the church cannot fail Now, that might seem a little bit confusing, but if anything that God says is not true, then there is no truth to be found. So I don't know how that people can say that individuals are the pillar and ground of the truth, and that's what it would have to be if the church is the individual. Now, again, the church is a collection of believers that has Christ as its head. It has the Holy Spirit as its energizer. And if you describe the church in that way, define it that way, then certainly then I can see how the church can be the pillar and the ground of the truth. But I'm never going to believe that Joe Schmo out here somewhere is the one that I depend on to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And so these same people who say that Roman Catholicism is not the true church are, are ones that call uh, the ones that were schismatic ...from the Roman Catholic Church, they call them heretics. And again, there is nobody left to be the church if you exclude both groups. So all the groups that we say are in the lineage of Baptists today, they say are heretics. Now, I've said all that because that's very important to our discussion tonight on the Anabaptists. Now, last night, we, or last week, rather, we got, we got started with them. And so I want to continue our discussion this evening... Uh, in this time period where we find Anabaptist. And that's the fifth period of the church, which is known as the Age of the Renaissance and the Reformation. The Renaissance and the Reformation. Now, 1453 is the first date that we have here, and that is the date of the fall of Constantinople. And 1648 is the date of the Peace of Westphalia. Now, I've said a lot about Constantinople and about the Byzantine Empire... Constantinople fell in 1453. Uh, They were conquered by the Ottomans, who were Muslims. And the fall of Constantinople was the end of the 1,500-year existence of the Roman Empire. And since that time, uh, Constantinople, uh, which is known today as Istanbul, has been under the control of Islam. And so the fall of Constantinople is what actually marks the end of the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages and also the beginning of the Renaissance. Now on the other end of those dates, uh, 1648, that is the Peace of Westphalia. And I'm not going to go much into the details about that, but just to say this, that basically what this peace did was to end many of the rival wars that were in Europe. Now, it didn't stop them completely because, obviously, there were still wars there, but it greatly reduced war, and the peace of Westphalia was actually the beginning of international law, and that's when uh, the different countries began to respect the sovereign rights of other nations. Now, that really wasn't a cure-all for all of the ills of that time, but... Uh, there's still this religious motivation that's behind things. The Roman Catholics are still trying to push out Protestants. But now, for the first time, you actually have political boundaries that are observed and are enforced. And it became the right of each nation to decide their own religious worship. And so that meant that Germany could choose Lutheranism to be State Church. Uh, Switzerland could choose Presbyterianism. England could choose the Church of England or Anglicanism. Uh, France and Spain and other countries could choose to be Catholic countries. And so the Peace of Westphalia is, is that time period when the national borders were, were being recognized. That was preceded by what is called the Peace of Augsburg, and that was in 1555, and that was a peace between Lutherans and Catholics, and they agreed not to persecute one another. Now, here here's the issue that you have at that time that uh, to persecute Lutherans meant war with Germany, and to persecute Catholics meant war with Catholic countries. And so you have these pieces between Protestants and Catholics that began to come about. And so in between that period of 1453 and 1648 is when the Reformation took place. And it was in full swing with Luther and Calvin in the late 16th century And then Protestantism Protestantism was fully established by 1648. Now, as I've said, during that time, Lutheranism was born. Presbyterianism came into being. England had the Church of England. And uh, that was basically, as I told you last week, Catholicism without a pope. But finally, it succumbed to Protestantism under the influence of men like uh, Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans. Now, another group that is very important for us to talk about uh, during that time, and I'm going to maybe talk about them a little bit more next week as well, uh, they were splintered off of the Protestants, and that was a group that is called the Congregationalist. Now, Congregationalists. are were people during the Reformation that really didn't think that reformers the Reformers went far enough, and what they were mostly against the Reformers over was they rejected the form of church government that was established by Luther and Calvin. So the Congregationalists actually wanted to return to the New Testament model of congregational rule. Now, importantly, concerning them, they they were not different in their soteriology from Calvin. They agreed with Calvin on the doctrines of salvation, but where they were different was on church polity, and that's in the area of church government we're talking about where you have congregational rule as opposed to presbyter rule and so on. And so these people, the Congregationalists, were an important group during that time, especially in England. And among those that that came out of the Congregationalists are men like the great commentator Matthew Henry. Now, everybody heard of Matthew Henry? Everybody knows who that is? All right. Matthew Henry is probably known as the the greatest commentator of all time it 's certainly the most read commentator of all time, and Matthew Henry was a Congregationalist. Jonathan Edwards in this country, who many consider to be the greatest theologian that America ever produced, was also counted among the Congregationalists and so there were there were really good men that were in that group. Now Baptists are sometimes confused with Congregationalists, or having come out of congregationalist uh, uh, Congregationalism, and, and I'll show you that uh, maybe at a later time, but Congregationalists were a very important group. But today, when you talk about Congregationalists, you can be totally confused, because the Congregationalists of today bear no resemblance at all to the Congregationalists that we find back during the Protestant Reformation. Now, when you go into New England today, and... Uh, and you visit some of those, those towns there, the beautiful towns, and the, you see the fall colors and the leaves in Vermont and New Hampshire and New York and other places like that. You've seen the pictures where there's a white church, which is a huge spire that goes up into the sky. Many times those churches, those old churches, are congregational churches. But those churches don't believe anything at all like the Congregationalists and the Protestant Reformation. But those churches today are mainly Universalists in their belief. Now, I think it's worth mentioning for us to understand how that they went so seriously wrong because they, they started out with some very good doctrine. They believed very strongly in soul liberty, but they went so far left on soul liberty that they lost the right among their members to insist upon a standard for their membership. And so in the beginning they affirmed they affirmed rather the the historic doctrines of the faith, the historic creeds, the confessions of the faith, but over time they they didn't believe in enforcing that standard upon their people, and so that caused the people to hold many different opinions, and there were many things that they held that were subversive to the faith. And they had no means of disciplining people that were subversive to the faith. And so the result of that over all this time is a denomination with very wide and varying beliefs. And so they splintered into many different factions. One of those uh, you may have heard of, and that is the United Church of Christ. Um, That's not the Church of Christ like you normally think of, uh, not the one that was started by Alexander Campbell. But this is the United Church of Christ came out of the Congregationalists, and that is the, um, that is the church that our current president, President Obama, claims to be a member of. Now, I want to say this, this next thing, and I don't say it out of uh, anything political. I'm just saying this out of religious things or understanding religion, and that is that the United Church of Christ is not Christian. In no way is it Christian, and if President Obama claims to be a member of that church, he is not Christian. Uh, The United Church of Christ is what I would call a chino. Does anybody know what a chino is? You know what a rhino is? Oh, you know what? Not a rhinoceros, but a rhino? A Republican in name only? Well, a chino or a chino is a Christian in name only, and that's what the United Church of Christ is. Now, in the midst of of these divisions of Protestantism, where you have Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Congregationalists, and then there are a few other groups that came along as well, in the midst of all that, mixed in with them are Baptists. Now, by the end of, of this period... All of the independent groups were now going under one name. And I'm talking about all those independent groups that we talked about previously, the many different names that I gave you. They were now all going under one name, and that name is the Anabaptist. Now, last week I gave you this, that the Anabaptists are rebaptizers. And that's not a name that we would choose for ourselves because that is a misnomer. Now, one of the things that you can do is you can go back and read the creeds and confessions that come out of this particular period, the ones that Baptists wrote, and some of them will start out this way. They'll say, we are not Anabaptists. We're not Anabaptists, because they understood what the term Anabaptist meant. Now, Anabaptists just didn't accept the baptism or recognize the baptism of Roman Catholics and of Protestants. We said those are not valid baptisms. Now, unfortunately, for our heritage and for those that don't accept perpetuity, what they do is they throw in every heretical group under the name Anabaptist. And so you'll find in that name some people that practiced infant baptism, and you'll find those that practice sprinkling. In fact, just about any variation of doctrine that's away from Roman Catholicism or Protestantism it was all lumped under this one group that was called Anabaptist and so you find even those that were involved in civil disobedience and anarchy things that had nothing at all to do with religion these people are also called an Anabaptist and so what we have to do is we have to sort through all of that. And those who don't believe in perpetuity, they take the heretics among those and they say, well, you, you can't, that, those groups can't have anything to do with, with Baptists because they don't believe like Baptists believe. Baptists today have no link to Anabaptist. But the assertions aren't true. See, so we can't take all Anabaptists and say that they're heretical because our enemies have determined that they composed all of these heretical groups. No, among them were Baptists who did have true beliefs and believed things like we do today. So many of the Bapt- Anabaptists were successors of those groups that we've named before that since the New Testament had held on to the truth. Then towards the end of the Reformation, those that taught like we teach today dropped the prefix Anna, and just started calling themselves Baptist. Now, here's the thing about that. That would not have been possible until you come to this period. You couldn't have done that because the church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ was being persecuted. They couldn't be out in the open, and they couldn't put signs on the door that said, We are the Baptist, or anything like that because of the persecution. But you come down towards the end of the 17th century, and the persecution was beginning to relax. And it wasn't over by then. And we'll see that when we get into America, that even in America, Baptists were persecuted. But it was slowing down, and there wasn't as much. And so now you have these, these people that can identify themselves as Baptist, And we do know that they believe like we as Baptists believe now. So we look at this, that the Anabaptist. And obviously, we see by the name that there is a, an emphasis on baptism, and that's derived from the belief that in order for a baptism to be valid, that it has to be done by the proper mode, that is by immersion, and it must be done by, on a person or performed on a person who is qualified to receive it. So you have these two things that the Anabaptists particularly were standing for in in the area of baptism, and that is, you must baptize according to the New Testament method, and that is by immersion. And you must have a person who is a believer, someone who is already saved, and that person is a proper candidate for baptism. Now you see from that that that's why we rule out Protestant baptisms and. Why? That we rule out Roman Catholic baptisms. So those are essentials that the Anabaptists held to. But that's not all. I mean, you couldn't identify all Anabaptists simply on the issue of baptism alone. So you have the other doctrines that help it constitute a true church, and that would be salvation by grace through faith alone. So you have these Anabaptists who believe in, like we do, on the doctrine of justification. And then they were opposed to this developing theology of the Protestants called covenantalism. Now, covenant, the covenant, or the, the covenant theology that Protestants teach is where they get the idea of infant baptism. And what they say is that baptism replaces circumcision and so if circumcision can be is performed on infants then baptism can be performed on infants because baptism replaces circumcision so they get the idea in covenant theology we can baptize infants because of this covenant that god has made with his people now many baptists of that time most of the well all of the baptists actually rejected that part of covenantalism obviously we reject infant baptism because uh, you have to have a believer before you can baptize them. But you do have some Baptists, many of the Baptists that came out of that era that believed other parts of covenant theology. And those particular Baptists have, have their own trademark, and they're, they're really quite different from, from uh, regular Protestantism. The Anabaptists also believed that the Scriptures were the only rule of faith and practice. And so they were right there with the Reformers on that belief. Uh, We talked a couple of weeks ago, um, was it two weeks ago, I think it was, on the solas of the Reformation, and you remember that uh, one of the solas is sola scriptura, and the Anabaptists agreed with that, that scripture alone determines our faith and practice, and that doctrine of sola scriptura is the thing that uh, really underlied Luther's rejection of the traditions of Roman Catholicism that had no scriptural basis. Now, because of this, because that Protestants and Baptists believe that Scripture alone is final authority, that enables us to have a dialogue with one another. Now, let me give you an example. A few weeks ago or months ago, I listened to a debate between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul on the issue of infant baptism. Now, they can talk with one another and they can debate with one another because both of them believe that Scripture alone is the final authority. Now, obviously, they don't agree on the conclusions of Scripture, but they do know that they have to go back to the Scriptures to try to prove their arguments. And so Baptists can have a dialogue with Protestants based on Scripture as final authority. But the same is not true when we come to Roman Catholicism. We don't have a common basis to have an argument with Roman Catholicism because they don't believe that the Scriptures actually settle anything. Now, uh, the Roman Catholic will accept the Scriptures and he'll go by the Bible as long as he thinks it's in his favor. He'll use the Bible when it's in his favor. But he will lose the Bible when it starts to go against him. And that's when a Roman Catholic falls back on traditions. So, we don't really have a basis to argue with Roman Catholics. When they get into a corner, they fall back on what the church says because they believe that the church is the authority rather than the scriptures. But when we look at that, we also have to be fair in the evaluation because we don't want to give way too much credit to the Protestants. And that's because they brought out some traditions that were in Catholicism that don't have a scriptural basis. And so there are some problems along those lines as well. But we go back to the Anabaptists, and another important belief that they had was the stand on the authority of the local assembly, the pastor of the local assembly. And they didn't believe that the pastor of a church had any authority over any other pastors or any other church. Now, by that, of course, they would reject the pope, anything like a hierarchical church government. So they're not going to accept that that a bishop, a pope, can have rule over many different churches. And yet, while they believe that, they, they're also living under a church-state government. And they believed in obedience to the government, even though it's connected very closely with the state church. Now, at, we've looked at that problem before, very early on when we first saw Constantinianism as a practice, and that is to oppose the church state government is to oppose the church and the state. You oppose one and you oppose you also oppose the other. And that's the reason that many Anabaptists were charged with civil disobedience, and they were called anarchists. And that's because... Of this this issue of church-state government, but being against the government was wholly inconsistent with Anabaptist beliefs. Now, then going back to my earlier comments at the beginning of the message, did the Anabaptists actually have a connection to these earlier groups like the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Wyclophites, and so on? Now, as I've said, those who interpret Matthew 16, 18 differently than we do and don't believe in successionism, they say that, no, Baptists don't have any connection to those people. Well, what I'd like to give you now is just four quotes from, uh, these are representative of many quotes, but... These are from respected historians who were not Baptist, so they don't really have an axe to grind here. They're not Baptist, and one of them was a reformer. The first one is from Mosheim, who who is a Lutheran historian, and he was considered to be the father of modern church history. And this is what he said. The origin of the Anabaptist is lost in the remote depths of antiquity. Before the rise of Luther and Calvin, there lay concealed in almost all countries of Europe persons who adhered tenaciously to the principles of modern Dutch Baptist. Now, Mosheim lived in the 18th century, and we know by looking at the writings of the Dutch Baptists what they believed, and they believed just like we believe. Now, the next quote comes from a Quaker, Robert Barclay. He lived in the 17th century, and he wrote, "...the rise of Anabaptists took place prior to the Reformation of the Church of England, and there are also reasons for believing that the continent of Europe, small hidden societies who have held many of the opinions of the Anabaptists, have existed from the time of the Apostles." Now, in that quote, we find the Anabaptists all the way back to the time of the Apostles. And then you combine that with what, what Mosheim said, now you have Baptists that are all the way back to the time of the apostles. Then there's a third quote. This one comes from Ulrich Zwingli, who was a Swiss reformer who lived in the 15th and the early 16th centuries. And what he wrote establishes the antiquity of Anabaptists. He said, "...the institution of the Anabaptist is no novelty, but for 1,300 years has caused great troubles to the church. Now, of course, Swingley believed that they were heretics, and uh, the church that he's talking about is both Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, and he says the Anabaptists have been a big problem all of these years. And then we have one more quote. This is from Edmund Broadbent, who was of uh, the Plymouth Brethren, and he wrote in the early 20th century, Those called Waldenses or Anabaptists and others of like character were not reformers of the Roman Catholic Church nor afterwards of the Lutheran and Reformed churches. Their origin was earlier and they carried on their primitive Bible teachings and practices from before and then through the times of the rise and the progress of those later developed communions. So there we have Baptist established far, far in advance of the Reformation. Now you say, why is that so important? Why do we need to establish Baptist prior to the Reformation? Well, the reason that we do is because almost all modern histories, and I might even say all modern histories, the popular ones at least, place the Baptist in the era of the Reformation. And they say that we came out of the Reformation. In other words, there are no Baptists before the Reformation. And so what they do is they call us one of the splinter groups of Protestantism. And what they actually say is that Baptists are the radicals of the Reformation. Now we want to ask the question, are we the radicals of the Reformation? Well, they say that we are. And they say that's the reason that Baptists are not like other Protestants. For instance, we, we refuse infant baptism. We refuse the covenant theology and all of those things. And so they say, well, the reason that Baptists are not like other Protestants is because they were the radicals. They were the left wing of the Protestant movement. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I don't want to be called the left wing of anything. I mean, I don't even like living on the left coast. So I, I don't want to be called left wing, left anything. So they to call us Protestants whether it's left wing right wing or wing dingers is wrong on on two very important issues. We didn't start in the Reformation, so they can't call us reformers. We we reject that, and then also we, we're not radical. We're ha, we're not radical. We live by the New Testament. The people that are radical are the ones that don't follow the New Testament. Uh, We're just normal Christians doing what Christ told us to do. We're not radical. We're not protesting anything. We're not against anything other than the devil himself. We're for all the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just normal Christians that live according to the Bible. Now, here's a good point that I think needs to be made. And that is, as Baptists... We were here before the Protestants and before the Catholics, but we won't be here after them. We preceded them, but we're not going to outlast them. And I'll tell you why. And that's because when the rapture comes, there are going to be many Protestants that are going to be left. And I think there are going to be most of the Roman Catholics who are going to be left, certainly anyone who believes what Roman Catholicism teaches. Now, the Bible says that after the rapture, during the tribulation time that we were talking about this morning, that these churches, the Protestant churches, are the harlot daughters of Rome. And what they will do is they will return to Rome. Now, Baptist, true Baptist, that is, I'm not talking about nominal Baptist or somebody who's just a member of a Baptist church. I mean somebody who has their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they truly do trust him. They believe he saves them from their sins. They've been saved by grace through faith alone. They're all going to be gone. All the Baptists like that are going to be taken out of the world along with others that may not even call themselves Baptists as long as they believe that. And so there aren't going to be any true believers left when the tribulation begins. Now, as we look at this, every year it seems like like the walls of... Of evangelicalism and Catholicism are breaking down. Every accord that's signed, every agreement that they get into, it seems like the dividing lines between Protestants and Catholics is getting smaller and smaller. And what that's doing, quite frankly, is setting this whole thing up for a one-world church. And that one-world church is the church of the Antichrist. Now, as an example of that, Uh, We had the picture up here the other night of Pope Francis. And you remember I said, Rick Warren, the pseudo-Baptist, said he is our Pope. Our Pope. A Baptist said he is our Pope. And Pope Francis is quickly becoming the most well-liked Pope of all time. He's called the Pope of the people. And you just watch out because these, these things... You know, they're setting this whole thing up for one church, one world uh, a church. And, and the lines get smaller and smaller all the time. Now, one other thing that I want to mention to you tonight uh, concerning Anabaptists and the Anabaptist movement uh, were, were in this movement, there were men like Minno Simons and men like Jacob Amon. Now, to tell you who they were, Minno Simons is the founder of the Mennonites. Jacob Amon is the founder of the Amish. And both of those men had views that were similar to Baptist, especially Minno Simons, uh, views that are similar to Baptists, but they're not considered to be Baptists today. They were in the Anabaptist movement, but they're not considered to be Baptists today. Well, why not? Well, because they have a theology that says that people can lose their salvation. Now, we, we, we've talked about that, that that is a confusion on the grace of, of God to believe that a person could lose his salvation. So that would be an example of people that were in the Anabaptist movement, and when the Baptists dropped the Anna, these are people that kept the Anna. Now, today, they're known as Mennonites or Amish and so on and some of the other groups. But they were in the Anabaptist movement, but they didn't stay with the Baptists. When the Baptists came out or when the Baptists dropped the Anabaptists, now we have a very clearly defined group of of what Baptists are and what they believe. So what you can do is you can go back into the history of that time especially English Baptists, because that's, that's what's going to concern us most now. And there you find, in the historic confessions of Baptists, you find the very same beliefs that we believe right now. And there are many of these. But there are four of them, in particular, that sort of outshine all of the others and became a standard for Baptists. Now, the first one is the first London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1644. The next one is the second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. The third one is the Philadelphia Confession of 1742. And the fourth is the New Hampshire Confession of 1833. And those four confessions pretty much defined Baptist life and I mean, it's, it's all biblical, of course. It's a confession based upon Scripture and what we believe. And those basically, those four confessions basically defined Baptist churches for the next several hundred years. Well, since 1689 or so, 1742 in America, what's that? Over 200, 250 years, more than 250 years. That defined what Baptists believe. Now, as you can see, two of the confessions are, are English, from the English Baptist. And two of the confessions are from American Baptists. So we take our, our, our history from, from the English Baptists mostly, so that's where we're going to concern ourselves mostly as we go through the rest of our, of our study of Baptist history. Now, I, what I find to be very interesting about this is that the Berean Baptist Church and what I have taught you very closely allies with all of the major points that you find in the 1644 Confession, the 1689, the 1742, and the New Hampshire of 1833. In fact, the New Hampshire is almost word for word the underlying basis of our statement of faith in this church. And all four of those those, uh, statements of faith agree. And as I said, those define what Baptists have believed in all of that time. Now... There are Baptists today, though, and I would say many, many, many Baptists who don't agree with those confessions of faith. In fact, they will go so far as to say those who believe those confessions of faith are actually heretical. Some of them would never let me preach in their pulpits because of what we believe concerning these confessions of faith. Now, that's very strange because these modern-day Baptists call people who believe those confessions of faith heretics. And if that's true, then it means that the modern Baptists have no connection to these Baptists and thus no connection to the New Testament church. Now, do you find that to be a problem? Well, I find it to be a very definite problem. And so what we do is we stick with those historic confessions not because the confession itself is what defines us but that's what our baptist forefathers how they interpreted scripture and this is how we got the doctrines that we believe these these aren't things they made up but they kept this consistently down through the ages and then when it came to the time we have printing presses and people are writing we have things that we can hold on to and books that we can put in a library and put on a shelf and go study them then what are they They are these historic confessions of faith that came out of that particular time period. So I'm glad that the Berean Baptist Church stands with those confessions of faith because I know that that, believing the Bible and understanding the interpretation of doctrine in that way anchors me to the New Testament Church. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to talk about English Baptists in the next lesson. We're going to get into... Uh, finally colonization of America and what was going on with Baptists in this country. And hopefully you'll find out some, you'll learn some interesting things about the Baptists and what we have believed and what we stood for and how important that Baptists were in the formation of this country. And hopefully you'll go away saying, thank God that I'm a Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you, Lord, that we can get involved in a study like this, that we can look back in the history and we can find churches that believe like we believe. And, Lord, what we want to do is, is we're, we don't say these things being prideful or, or any such thing. Uh, we believe what we believe only because your grace has sustained us. You, you've given us these truths. But we are so thankful, Lord, that we fall in that number of Baptists that still hold on to those historic confessions that our Baptist forefathers so painstakingly uh, wrote down and actually gave their lives for to maintain. We're we're thankful that we can stand with them. Help us. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronit Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.